ಓಂ ನಮೋ ಭಗವತೆ ಶ್ರೀ ಅರುಣಾಚಲ ರಮಣಾಯ ನಮಸ್ಕಾರ ಟುಡೇ ಐಮ್ ಗೋಯಿಂಗ್ ಟು ಬಿ ಟೋಕಿಂಗ್ ಅಬೌಟ್ ವರ್ಸ್ ಏಟ್ ಅನುಬಂಧಂ ದಿಸ್ ಇಸ್ ಒನ್ ಆಫ್ ದ ಟೂ ವರ್ಸ್ ಇಸ್ ಇನ್ ಅನುಬಂಧಂ ದಿಸ್ ವರ್ಸ್ ಇನ್ ವರ್ಸ್ ಟೆನ್ ಭಗವಾನ್ ಫಸ್ಟ್ ಕಂಪೋಸ್ಡ್ ಇನ್ ಸಂಸ್ಕೃತ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಲೈಟರ್ ಟ್ರಾನ್ಸ್ಲೇಟೆಡ್ ಇನ್ ತಮಿಳ್ so first i will talk i will talk about the sanskrit version of this verse and then the tamil version because the tamil version throws some light on the sanskrit um the this um sanskrit verse is um is it is considered generally to be a very important verse of uh, bhagavan's teachings so much so that in um in the stone hall that was constructed for bhagavan in front of his mother's uh, uh temple um above the stone sofa that they carved for him they carved in gold letters or they carved them and painted in gold letters the um this uh, sanskrit verse um but it is not actually the most important sanskrit it's not the most important verse composed by bhagavan um but it is certainly a very uh, interesting verse um <clears throat> and uh, in kavyaganta's uh, ramana gita he gave devotes a whole chapter to this verse that is chapter 2 uh, it's i think it's if i remember correctly it's called on the three paths and it's about basic it's kavyaganta's explanation of this verse um not actually a correct explanation but it's it's his explanation nevertheless um <clears throat> so uh i'll first uh read the verse explain the meaning and then i'll explain the context in which bhagavan wrote this the verse in sanskrit um please forgive me if i'm not reading it quite correctly because uh slightly dyslexic in my pronunciation of sanskrit is probably not very good but anyway ಹೃದಯ ಗುಹರ ಮಧ್ಯೆ ಕೇವಲ ಬ್ರಹ್ಮ ಹಿಯಂ ಅಹಂ ಸಾಕ್ಷಾತ್ ಆತ್ಮೂಪೈ ಹೃದಯ ವಿಷ ಮನಸಾಸ್ವಂಚಿಂಬಿಷ್ಟೌಬವತ್ವಸ್ಟ್ಸ್ ಹೃದಯ ಗುಹರ ಮಧ್ಯೆ ಕೇವಲ ಬ್ರಹ್ಮ ಅಹಂ ಅಹಂ ಸಾಕ್ಷಾತ್ ಆತ್ಮೂಪೈನ ಬಾತಿ ವಾಟ್ ದಟ್ ಮೀನ್ಸ್ ಇಸ್ ಇನ್ ದ ಸೆಂಟರ್ ಆಫ್ ದ ಹಾರ್ಟ್ ಕೇವ್ ಸೊಲಟ್ರಲಿ ಬ್ರಹ್ಮನ್ ಶೈನ್ಸ್ ಅಲೋನ್ ಕ್ಲಿಯರ್ಲಿ ಇನ್ ದ ಫೋರ್ಮ್ ಆಫ್ ಒನ್ ಸೆಲ್ ಅಸ್ ಐ ಎಂ ಐ ದಟ್ ಇಸ್ ಹೃದಯ ಗುಹರ ಮೀನ್ಸ್ ದ ಹಾರ್ಟ್ ಕೇವ್ ಮಧ್ಯೆ ಮೀನ್ಸ್ ಇನ್ ದ ಸೆಂಟರ್ ಸೊ ಇನ್ ದ ಸೆಂಟರ್ ಆಫ್ ದ ಹಾರ್ಟ್ ಕೇವ್ kevalam i believe is here a uh, um used as an adverb meaning solitarily uh, on its own uh, um brahman alone uh, brahma matram is brahman alone uh, <coughs> uh bhati shines uh sakshat means uh, uh um <coughs> sakshat means openly clearly evidently immediately or directly um uh uh shines uh atma rupena in the form of oneself 
aham aham iti, as I am I. Um, so this is, this is a, a very clear statement of Bhagavan's teachings, but what is called Brahman is nothing but that which is shining, always shining clearly in the center of the heart cave of all of us as I am I. What is the significance of this term, aham aham, or I am I? Uh, the reason Bhagavan often used this term is now what the reason is that what we actually are is nothing other than ourselves. But we now take ourselves to be something other than what we actually are, other than ourselves. We take ourselves to be this body consisting of five sheaths. So, as Bhagavan said, ego is nothing but the adjunct conflated awareness I am this body. But what we actually are is not this false awareness, I am this body, but just the pure awareness, I am. So who am I? I am I. I'm nothing other than I. So I am I here signifies awareness of ourself as ourself alone. So that fundamental awareness, I am, which is shining in the heart of all of us, that is Brahman, and it is aware of itself as itself alone, as I am I. So that is what we actually are. And then in the uh, second half of the verse, um, is a separate sentence, Hridi uh, Visa means entering the heart, Manasa means by the mind, Svam Chimbata, uh, um, so, sorry, Svam Chimbata Majata, Majata means sinking, Chimbata here means investigating or attending to. Chimbata can mean um, it's got a uh, it can mean attending, being attentive, thinking, or investigating. Uh, swam means uh, oneself or itself. So entering the heart by the mind, uh, sinking, investigating itself. Sinking here uh, sometimes is magnetized. Uh, translated as diving, but I think sinking is a more appropriate term than uh, diving, because diving tends to suggest a more active process, whereas sinking is just a, suggests more of a subsidence, uh, sinking. And sinking where? Sinking deep within. Sinking, that is, when we sink deep enough within, we enter the heart. That's the idea. And how do we sink deep within? By the mind investigating itself. This is clearly Bhagavan's teachings. But then we come across the problem in this verse. Va means or. Pavana chalana rodat. Pavana means Pavana means wind, air, or in this context, breath. Chalana means movement, and rodat is a um, an ablative or fifth case form of roda. Um, uh, means uh, literally means from restraining, but it in, in English we'd say by restraining. Often in Sanskrit, the ablative is used where in English we would use uh, by. Now, the ablative is often used in the in the sense of the um, of the instrumental case. That is from restraining means as a result of restraining or by restraining. Uh, so by rest by rest. Or, so, the mind entering the heart, sorry, entering the heart by the mind sinking, 
deep uh, investigating itself or by restraining the movement of the breath. Apmanishto uh, bhavatvam, may you be fixed in yourself. Apma uh, means uh, your oneself, yourself, myself, because it's, a, it's an instruction to us. We have to take it as yourself. Um, be, be, and nishta means to be fixed or well, nishta means to be in or be fixed in or to remain as, but it, so it gives the idea of be fixed in yourself. Being fixed as oneself means remaining, implies be, remaining as we actually are, being as we actually are. How can we be as we actually are? Only by not rising as ego. So long as we rise as ego, though we are always ourselves, we seem to be something other than what we actually are when we rise as ego. So to be abmanishta means the state in which we do not rise as ego. In other words, the state in which we remain as we always actually are. Uh, so the implication of this sentence is that there are two means to uh, to enter the heart. And the heart here means our real nature, what we actually are, the, the pure awareness I am. Entering that means subsiding back into that. When we subside into the heart, we thereby um, uh, become established in uh, Abhanishta. Um, yes, as I was saying, this sentence implies that is entering the heart means subsiding back within, deep into the heart. So it's only by sinking within that we can enter the heart. Um, and by entering the heart, since the heart is our real nature, we thereby remain fixed in ourselves. So, Atmanishta is the is the ultimate goal to be as we actually are. That's our aim. And in order to be as we actually are, according to Bhagavan, the only means is investigating ourselves. But this sentence seems to imply that there are two mean two ways to be fixed in ourselves. One is by the mind subsiding, investigating itself, or the other means is restraining the movement of the breath. So, how did this? idea come in here but we can enter we can um we can restrain the movement but we we can be fixed in ourselves we can be as we actually are by restraining the breath because bar means all so it, it implies that this is an alternative means bar can also in some context means and um, but that's not how it's usually var is used in the sense of all. So that's the, the obvious meaning of var. So how did this idea come to be in this verse? Why would Bhagavan write like that? There is a reason. Um, that is, uh, how Bhagavan came to write this verse is very, is very significant. One day in 1915, a devotee called Jagdishwara Sastri uh, tried to wrote, write a verse beginning with the words Pridya Guhra Madhye. But he struggled to express his ideas in the form of a, a verse. He couldn't find the appropriate words for it. So when Bhagavan asked him what, what he was trying to do, he said he was trying to write a verse with some particular ideas. But he couldn't he couldn't form it into a verse. So Bhagavan said, go and try, you'll, you, you'll be able to do it. But he struggled and he wasn't able to do it. So when he left, he left the paper 
I think Balawan was sitting on a, on a small mat or something. He left the paper on which he had written these words, Hridhya Gura Madhye, under Bhagavan's, uh, under the mat. Presumably he did so, hoping that Bhagavan would complete the verse for him, since he had told Bhagavan what he was trying to say. Bhagavan therefore wrote Jagadisa's ideas in the form of this verse, and he, when he completed the verse, he signed it Jagadishan to show that the ideas in, expressed in it were Jagadishwara Sastras rather than his own. Uh, however, except um, and when Jagadishwara Sastri came back and saw the verse, he asked Bhagavan, why did you write my name under it? It was you who composed the verse. I only wrote the first three words. Then Bhagavan said, it was your idea, so I, um, I, I merely expressed your ideas in the form of this verse. However, except for this, um, this, uh, this uh, uh, phrase, a pavana, pavana chalana roda, by uh, restraining the uh, movement of the breath, except this idea, all the other ideas in this verse are in perfect accordance with Bhagavan's teachings, presumably because they were ideas that Jagadishwara Sastri had learned from Bhagavan. So the only idea that we can say here is Jagadishwara Sastri's idea rather than Bhagavan's idea is this Pavla Chana Rodat. Why, why can we say that this is not, um, that this is not uh, uh, Bhagavan's idea? Because Bhagavan made it so clear in so many places that um but uh, we cannot uh, but all we can achieve by pranayama is a temporary dissolution of mind or manolaya we cannot achieve manonasa um apmanishta apply in this context implies manonasa because in order to be as we actually are in order to be fixed in ourselves uh we we can be fixed in ourselves, firmly fixed in ourselves, only by eradicating ego, and by eradicating. And we and ego cannot be eradicated by pranayama, as Bhagavan makes clear, for example, in the eighth paragraph of Nana. In this context, it's worth reading this eighth paragraph, to, or at least parts of it, to understand why this is why what is said here is not Bhagavan's um, teaching. And remember. Though Bhagavan wrote the Nana in the form of an essay, only in around in about 1926 or 27, um, I think, as far as I'm aware, the exact year when Bhagavan wrote it in the form of an essay is not known, but it must have been around 1926 or 27. Except for the first paragraph of Nana, almost all the ideas in Nana were replies that Bhagavan gave to Shiva Prakashan Pillai in uh, about 1901 or 1902, when Bhagavan was just in his early 20s, Shiva Prakashan Pillai asked him a series of questions. Since Bhagavan wasn't talking much in those days, Bhagavan would reply. Sometimes he would uh, just write his replies on the sandy ground, but or at least the first few answers he gave to Shiva Prakashan Pillai, he wrote on the sandy ground. Then knowing Bhagavan was writing the replies, after that Shiv Prakashan Pillai began to bring either a slate or a, uh, um, a paper and pencil for Bhagavan to write. So 
uh, once you catch and play recorded of what was written or what Bhagavan replied was was uh, must have been pretty accurate because Bhagavan had actually written it. So and Shubhakarpalai um, wrote it almost immediately. So he had a copy of Bhagavan's answers, but he never thought of publishing it until many years later, in about nineteen twenty-two or twenty-three. I think it was twenty-three, but it could have been twenty-two. Shubhakarpalai, um, well, Shubhakarpalai had written a biography of Bhagavan in verse form called Ramana Charita Ahaval. Ahaval is a form of verse in Tamil, but can go on for any number of lines. So it was a multi-line verse. And not not divide it wasn't a poem divided up into separate verses. It was just a, a series of um I mean it was just one long verse with, with many lines. In that biography, he wrote a brief summary of what Bhagavan had taught him when he first came to him back in 1901 or 1902. So when this, um, when, uh, uh, um, um, I think it was Manikam who was the, um, who was Shiv Kashan um, uh, nephew and a very close, like, almost like, a, um, well, he was very close to Shiv Kashan So he wanted to uh, have it published. So, um, it was decided that it would be published, and that um, some of the uh, about I think it was twenty five of the question and answers, twenty four or twenty five I can't remember the exact number of the question and answers, but uh, the questions asked by Kashan Pillai and answers given by Bhagavan would be published as an appendix. So Manikam Pillai brought it to Bhagavan, got Bhagavan's approval, and then it was published. When it was published. When devotees read this uh, appendix, they were very interested, but Bhagavan had given such teachings. So they asked Kashampalai to publish all that he had recorded as a separate book. So um, then came out, then Nana for the first time came out as a separate book, which consisted of 30 questions and answers and some miscellaneous sayings of Bhagavan. Um, that 30 question and answer version was, I think, first published probably in 1923 or 24, and it continued to be published for about 10 years. But a few years after it was published, Bhagavan, um, Bhagavan rewrote it in the form of an essay. And when he rewrote it in the form of an essay, he added the first paragraph, which wasn't there at all in the answers he given to Shiv Prakashan Pillai, as a fitting introduction. So he wrote an essay of 20 paragraphs, one entirely new paragraph, and the rest was compiled from the answers he had given to Shiv Kashan Pillai. But Bhagavan edited it very carefully. He omitted some of the answers he had given because they, for some re one reason or another, they were not entirely appropriate. They may have been appropriate to give to Shiv Kashan Pillai at that time, but they were not. Bhagavan didn't consider they were appropriate for inclusion in the essay version. So the essay version is the is, is the most reliable version because it's been written by Bhagavan. And Bhagavan, in places, he slightly changed the wording and um, he omitted some ideas and he refined certain other ideas. So the essay is entirely a work by Bhagavan. Some years later, um, that is around 1931, the ashram started its own publication. And because people 
generally question and answers are more popular than a, a treatise, in, like an essay. Um, there was a, a, a demand for a question for the question and answer version. But since the 30 question and answer version was being published by another group of Bhagavan's devotees in the town, um, it was decided to make a new version for the ashram to publish. And that new version was concocted from this 30 question and answer version and Bhagavan's essay version. But it was whoever compiled it didn't do very didn't compile it very well because some sentences are repeated and some portions that Bhagavan had omitted in the essay, deliberately omitted in the essay, were included. That is the 28 question and answer version that nowadays is um, available both in Tamil and in English. But we shouldn't take that as such a reliable version. The most reliable version is this essay version. So what Bhagavan wrote in the essay in this eighth paragraph, as I say, this was many years before he, this was what Bhagavan had said to Sri Prakash and Pillai, uh, um, for, uh, 13 or 14 years before he wrote this verse for Jagadishwara Sastri. So we can say this is the real idea of Bhagavan. And also Bhagavan repeated this in so many ways in other places, in verses um, verses 11, 12, um, 13 and 14 of uh, Upadesha Undia. He implies very much the same that he writes here. So this is definitely the true... The, the, the real opinion of Bhagavan. What he says in this paragraph is, um, it's not entirely, it's not, it's not very easy to convey what Bhagavan says here very clearly in English because the, the words, some of the words Bhagavan uses here are words for which there's no exact equivalent in English. In the first two sentences, he uses two words, two verbs, sorry, uh, a a dangu, a dangu means um, it's, a dangu has a range of meanings. It means to submit, yield, uh, be subdued, to shrink, become compressed, to cease, to settle, subside, uh, to disappear, uh, to be still, uh, to be comprised or included. Um, so it's got a range of meanings, but here the idea and the other verb he used in the second sentence is the uh, adaku, which is the, the cause, uh, the, the cause of adangu. So uh, to cause to be adangu is adaku. Ad, ad, so um, Bhagavan uses these two verbs here. I'm going to, for the for the sake of simplicity, I will translate. It as uh, cease because that's easy. That's closest to the meaning that Bhagavan means. But cease can mean um, cease temporarily or cease uh, permanently. In um, in Manolaya, the mind ceases, but only temporarily. Uh, our aim is Manonasa, which is permanent cessation of the mind. So what Bhagavan uh, says in the first sentence is, for the mind to cease. Except vicharana, vicharana means uh, uh, vicharana is another form of the word, uh, same word as vichara. It means investigation. Here, obviously, it implies self-investigation. So, for the mind to cease, except self-investigation, there are no other adequate means. 
why are there not other adequate means? The mind can cease by other. That that is my explanation. Sorry. Why are there no other me adequate means? Because though the mind can cease or subside by other means, it will only be temporary, as Bhagavan goes on to explain. So since our aim is the permanent cessation of mind, or manonasa, no other means are adequate, because this is the only means that will bring about manonasa, is the implication. So Bhagavan goes on in the second sentence to say, it may decease by other means, the mind remaining uh, as if it had ceased uh, will again rise again. So it's cessation, that means its cessation was only a temporary cessation. And then he goes on to say, even by pranayama, the mind will, will cease. However, so long as the prana remains subsided, the mind will also remain subsided. Um, here subsided is the same word as ceased, but I sometimes will translate as subside, sometimes as ceased. It's, it means both, really. Uh, so, um, so long as the prana remains, prana means the, the breath, well, in, prana means life in, in general, the physiological functions in the body, but the centermost one is breathing. So in this context, prana implies breathing and also other physiological processes. So, so long as the prana remains subsided, mind will also remain subsided. And when the prana emerges, it will also emerge and wander under the sway of its vasanas. It here means the mind. So when the prana becomes active again, uh, when the breathing becomes active again, the mind will also become active. And when the mind becomes active, it will wander under the sway of its vasanas. This clause, but it will wander under the sway of its vasanas. Uh, how Bhagavan expresses that in um, in Tamilis, uh, pranam veli padam podu. When the prana comes out, uh, tanam that means tanu is referring to the mind. The mind also will come out. Vasan, uh, tanam veli padu. That means the mind also coming out. Vasanai vayatai aleyam. It will uh, it will wander under the sway of its vasanas. This is very significant because why and why Bhagavan says this is to indicate that uh, <clears throat> the subsidence of mind brought about by pranayama does not destroy the vasanas. So as soon as the mind emerges, it will wander under the sway of its vasanas as before. So in other words, nothing is achieved by that. To illustrate this, Bhagavan often used to tell the story of a yogi who lived on the banks of the Ganga. And he was very adept at pranayama and other yoga practices, so adept that he was he was able to go into uh, Nivikalpa Samadhi for prolonged periods of time. The Nivikalpa Samadhi of the yogis is, as Bhagavan clarified, it is just a state of manolaya. It is a temporary dissolution of mind. So to, to illustrate the, the ineffectiveness of um, such layer, of Nivikalpa Samadhi, or any state of layer, Bhagavan told this, used to tell this story. So this yogi was so adept at his yoga practices, he could go into Nivikalpa Samadhi for prolonged periods of time. And because the, the, he lived on the banks of the Ganga, there was a small village nearby. 
And the, the villagers had great respect for this uh, yogi, who they took to be a great Mahatma, a great soul, because he was seen to be sitting for hours or sometimes even days together, absorbed in samadhi. They thought he's a great uh, sage. So one of the villagers had become his disciple. One day when this yogi woke up from his Nivikalpa samadhi, he was feeling thirsty. So he asked his disciple to go and fetch water from the nearby Ganga. So the disciple dutifully went to the river to, and fetched some water and brought it back to the yogi. But by, by the time he had come back, the yogi had again gone into samadhi. And this time he went into samadhi so deeply that he remained in that state for 300 years. How was he able to remain in that state for 300 years? Because the, when the breath is controlled, all the physiological functions of the body will that is yoga very adept yogis can slow down the breathing and other um physiological functions so maybe just one breath a minute one or two heartbeats a minute so by slowing down the whole metabolism of the body the body can remain without food or water for prolonged periods of time and so this yogi was lived for 300 uh, stayed in that state for 300 years when Bhagavan told stories like this, he would always um, he, he would always um, add some color to them. So he said, within those three hundred years, everything had changed in the world. That is, pre when he went when he went into samadhi, India was entirely a Hindu country. Um, it was ruled by Hindu kings. But it, while he was in samadhi, the Muslims had come and invaded North India. So the politics of the country had changed. The Ganga had changed course, and so the Ganga was several miles away. And because the Ganga had changed course, the village also moved to be near the Ganga. So the yogi was in the in uh, uh, dense jungle grew up around him. But after three hundred years, when he woke up, the first thing he did was he angrily asked, "Where's my water?" What Bhagavan's comment on this is, the last thought that was in his mind before he went into Nirvikalpa Samadhi was the first thought that popped up as soon as he woke up from Nirvikalpa Samadhi. That means that not even the most superficial thought in the mind was destroyed in spite of remaining in Nirvikalpa Samadhi for 300 years. Often Bhagavan just left the explanation at that and left it to people to understand. But sometimes he would explain it. In, if, if he was questioned further, he would explain. What, right, people asked him, what is the significance of this? And, and Bhagavan, what Bhagavan explained is, that, <clears throat> since he, even the most superficial thought is not destroyed by remaining in Nirvikalpa Samadhi for so many years, what to say about the Vasanas? The vasanas all remain intact. So when you come out of Nirvikalpa Samadhi, all the same vasanas come back again. That is why he wrote here, a mind will come out again and wander under the sway of its vasanas. That's exactly what happened to, to that yogi. As soon as his mind came out, it was its vasanas took over. Um, so the <clears throat> Bhagavan's view of, of yoga and Nirvikalpa Samadhi is the, the 
the highest goal of yoga is to achieve nirvikalpa samadhi because what is yoga all about? Yoga's Chitta Vritti Nirodha, Patanjali wrote at the beginning of his Yoga Sutra. Chitta Vritti Nirodha means um, uh, curbing or restraining, or re that is curbing of or restraint of the Chitta Vrittis, the mental activities, the movements of the mind. So the aim of yoga is to stop all mental activity. And when you stop all mental activity, you um, you remain in uh, you you, um, you 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 the mind subsides in layer. I mean, the cessation of mental activity means the subsidence of the mind. When the mind subsides, it subsides not in nasa but only in layer. Layer is a, a temporary dissolution of the mind, like sleep. Sleep is a state of layer. Likewise, nirvikalpa samadhi is a state of layer. So. Bhagavan's view of yoga is the most you can achieve by yoga on its own is Nirvikalpa Samadhi. Um, <clears throat> and Nirvikalpa Samadhi is just a state of Manolaya, so it's not of any lasting spiritual benefit. Of course, it's very nice to stay in um, Nirvikalpa Samadhi, um, just like it's nice to be in sleep. In any state of Manolaya, we are free of the mind, at least temporarily, so it's very pleasant. But it is not... We, we are not looking for a temporary relief from the mind because the mind is surely going to come back again. Um, what we are looking for is the destruction of the mind. That is that is the true spiritual goal. It's not Manolaya, but Manonasa. That is why in Upadesha Undia, Bhagavan in verses 10 and 11, he explains that, um, that if you... If you the mind and prana both originate from the same source. If you control one, you control the other. And uh, uh, to illustrate this, Sadhuam often used to uh, say, if you have a, a a light and a fan, but are both controlled by the same switch, and if the switch is a dimmer switch, you can, if you want to reduce the light, you can reduce the light, but the fan will slow down. If you want to reduce the fan, um, the, the light will uh, dim. If you want to increase the fan, the light will become brighter. In, in that analogy, the fan is the breath, the, the prana, and the uh, light is the mind. So by controlling the mind, you control the breath. By controlling the breath, you control the, the, the mind. Control here means to subdue the activity of. So... The aim of yoga is just to stop the activity of the mind. That Bhagavan said, in other words, to stop thinking. But Bhagavan said that is not a, a worthy aim, because if the mind is stopped, it will come back again. The only worthy aim is to know what we actually are, because only by knowing what we actually are will the mind dissolve in such a way that it will never rise again. Um, so what Bhagavan, after explaining that, but controlling the breath is a means to control the mind in verses 11 and 12 of Upadesha India. In verse 13, he says that dissolution of mind is of two kinds, layer and nasa. What is dissolved in layer will rise again, but if its form dies in nasa, it will not rise again. The implication is that our aim is nasa, not layer. And then in verse 14, he says, this is, this is, where he shows how the yogi can make use of the calmness of mind achieved by uh, pranayama 
in order to know himself. That is, Bhagavan is not recommending that we follow this path, but for those who already are following this path, what Bhagavan says is, if the mind which is, uh, this is in verse 14 of Rupadesha India, if the mind which is, um, which is, uh, uh, subdued or uh, or uh, made to subside by means of pranayama, only if that mind is sent on the all-vari uh, will its form die. All-vari, um, vari means path. All has two meanings. All can mean oru or one. So it can mean sent on one path. But which one path? Um, obviously, Bhagavan is not talking about any one path, because pranayama itself is a path. So why not, by pranayama, he's talking about a particular path. The one path is how we have to take it, if we take the meaning of or as one. But or also has another meaning. Or is a verb that means to investigate or know. Um, so often in poetry, the root form of the verb, in this case, or, is used in place of the um, adjectival participle. The adjectival participle is orum. So or here means orum. Orum bari means the investigating path. What is the investigating path? The path of self-investigation. So what Bhagavan is referring to there by or bari is this one path of self-investigation. So only if the mind is sent on this one path of self-investigation will its form die. So however far a, a yogi may go in their practice of yoga, they cannot achieve manonasa without a, sooner or later turning the mind back within to it, sending it on this path of self-investigation. Because then only will its form die. Um, so this is Bhagavan's very clear opinion. So for Bhagavan, yoga is not, uh, it's an incomplete, uh, it can only lead to, uh, to Manolaya, which is of no use. Before the mind subsides in Manolaya, we should then turn it within. But in order to turn the mind within, we don't have to control the breath because to the extent to which we attend to ourselves, the mind will subside. And when the mind subsides, the breath will also subside. So it's trying to control the breath in order to control the mind is putting the cart before the horse. All we need to do is to make the mind subside. The most effective means to make the mind subside is self-attentiveness or self-investigation. And that is the only means that will bring about the permanent cessation of mind, as Bhagavan implies in this paragraph. So um, Coming coming back to this um, this um, eighth paragraph, as I said, in the first sentence he says, for the mind to, to cease, except uh, uh, self-investigation, there's no other adequate means. If made to cease by other means, the mind remaining as if it had ceased it, will rise again. In other words, what he implies, the mind remaining for a while as if it had ceased will rise again. Even by pranayama, the mind will cease. However, so long as the prana remains subsided, the mind will also remain subsided. And when the prana emerges, it will also emerge and wander under the sway of its vasanas. I'd read up to this point, and then I talked about the story of the yogi, which Bhagavan used to illustrate this point. Then he goes on to explain 
why um, controlling the breath will control will uh, will uh, uh, controlling restraining the breath will restrain the mind. The birthplace for both the mind and for prana is one. Um, now they both come from the same source. Thought alone is the swarupa or the, the the very nature of the mind. The thought called I alone is the first thought of the mind. It alone is ego. Uh, from where ego rises, from there alone the breath also rises. Therefore, when the mind ceases, the breath also ceases. And when the breath ceases, the mind also ceases. Uh, the breath is said to be the gross form of the mind. Until the time of death, the mind keeps the prana in the body and at the... Um, sorry, the... Sometimes Bhagavan is using here the word muchu. Um, other times he uses the word prana. So when he uses prana, I'll use the word prana. When he says muchu, I'll say breath. So when the prana, therefore when the mind ceases, the, uh, the prana also ceases. And when the prana ceases, the mind also ceases. The prana is called the gross form of the mind. Until the time of death, the mind keeps the prana in the body. And at the moment of uh, the body dies, Grasping it, that's grasping the prana, it goes. Um, in other words, it takes the life along with it. Therefore, pranayama is just an aid to restrain the mind. Uh, in other words, to make the mind subside, uh, cease temporarily, but it will not bring about manonasa. Manonasa means annihilation of mind. Um Many of you who've read this before will be familiar with another three sentences that occur after the sentence, Ahayal manam adangam podu pranamum, pranam adangam podu manamum adangam. That is the sentence that says, therefore, when the mind ceases, the prana also ceases, and when the prana ceases, the mind also ceases. There are three other sentences in all the more recent versions of Nana. However, I didn't include those in what I just read because these three sentences were not part of what um, what Bhagavan originally said to Shiva Kashan Palai or originally wrote in the essay. These seem to have been interpolated sometime around the mid-1930s. Um, did Bhagavan approve it? Of course, Bhagavan will approve anything if people if people want. What I suspect is someone would have raised an objection about this, saying, what about in sleep? In sleep, the, uh, the body continues breathing, even though the mind has subsided. So Bhagavan, understanding that the questioner had not was not able to understand or accept his deeper teachings, but it, according to Bhagavan's deeper teachings, there's no body at all in sleep. It's only in waking and dream that a body seems to exist. In in sleep, there's no body or world or anything because there's no ego. All these things exist in the view of ourself as ego. So when we as ego subside in sleep or in Nivikalpa Samadhi, there's no world at all. That is Bhagavan's view. But sometimes he had to dilute this teaching for those who were not ready to grasp it. So 
Obviously, someone had asked him a question. Well, we can assume, because I don't think someone would have just made up these sentences and added it. Someone would have asked Bhagavan a question, Bhagavan would have given this answer, and then they would say, oh, Bhagavan, shouldn't this be added there? And Bhagavan would say, okay, if you want, you add it. Um, but it's not, this isn't, this is in, incompatible with Bhagavan's deeper teachings. But anyway, I'll just read the sentences. However, in sleep, even though the mind has ceased, the prana does not cease. This is what is contrary to Bhagavan's teaching, because according to Bhagavan, when the mind ceases, everything ceases. If ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. He says in verse 26 of Uludunapadu. So um, in the light of those teachings, to say the prana does not sleep, cease in sleep is clearly not Bhagavan's real teaching. It is a, a concessionary teaching given to someone who wasn't able to understand the deeper teaching. And then Bhagavan went on to say, it is arranged thus by the ordinance of God for the purpose of protecting the body and so that other people do not wonder whether the body has died. When the mind ceases in waking and in samadhi, um, <clears throat> the prana ceases. Uh, so that's just, Bhagavan just added, well, at least the first two of those sentences are definitely a concession. The third sentence, Bhagavan is again emphasizing the important point, when the mind ceases in waking and uh, in samadhi, the prana also ceases. Um, so anyway, the, the most important point here is, Bhagavan concludes this paragraph by saying, therefore pranayama is, not an, is just an aid to restrain the mind, but will not bring about manonasa. So since it will not bring about manonasa, um, without manonasa, there cannot be atmanishta. Atmanishta means to be as we actually are. We can't be as we actually are without destroying the mind. Because the mind is mind, a root of destroying the mind includes eradicating ego, because ego is the root of the mind. So only when ego is eradicated, the mind destroyed. Without eradicating ego, we cannot remain in atmanishta, we cannot be firmly established in the state of being as we actually are, in other words. Um, so this Pavala Chanara Rodat in this verse is incompatible with the deeper teachings of Bhagavan. But presumably this is what uh, um, what Jagadishwara Sastri wanted to write, so Bhagavan wrote it for him, but he clearly signed the verse as Jagadishan. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Kavyaganta included this verse in the second chapter of Ramana Gita, and he gave his own interpretation to it. He gave a rather peculiar interpretation to it, because anyone reading this verse, even the Sanskrit version, would normally take it to mean two paths, the mind sinking, investigating itself, or restraining the movement of the breath. However, Kavyaganta interpreted it as three paths, the mind investigating itself, sinking or diving, and restraining the breath. So, first path is the mind investigating itself. Second is the, is, um, the mind diving. And the third is restraining the breath. Where, how the mind is to dive or, or to subside without investigating itself, he doesn't explain. But anyway, that was his idea. 
um, this is clearly not Bhagavan's idea, and Bhagavan made this clear in the um, in the in his Tamil translation. In fact, he Bhagavan perhaps wrote this Tamil translation very carefully in order to indicate that what Kaviyaganta had said in his explanation of the Sanskrit version is a wrong interpretation. I'll now come to the Tamil verse. Um, because that will make this very clear, and that will make this the main topic we're dealing about today. What Bhagavan says in this in the Tamil version of this verse, in the same way as the Sanskrit, there are two, there are four lines. The first two lines are one sentence. The second two lines are another. Well, in fact, in Tamil, the second two lines are split into two sentences, rather significantly, as I will explain. So, what he says in the first sentence, the first two lines, is. Idiamam gohayin napan ekamam brahma matram adu aham aham a nere avibidum amabaha. What that means is idiamam uh, gohayin means in the heart, in the cave which is the heart. Napan means uh, center, in the center of the cave which is the heart. Um, uh, Brahman, Ekamam Brahman, Brahman, which is the one. But Ekam means one, but here we, we have to take it to mean the one. In other words, the, the only one. Uh, because as it's explained in the Upanishads, Brahman is Ekam Eva Advaitiam, one only without a second. So that is the one Bhagavan is referring to here. So in in the center of the cave that is the heart, Brahman, which is the one, um, alone shines directly as I am I. Um, <clears throat> he uses the same uh, Sanskrit term, aham aham, whereas in most Tamil verses he usually says nan nan, but he, here he says aham aham. This is often translated, ahamaham or nanan, is often translated in English books as I hyphen I. This is a wrong interpretation. If you say in Tamil, um, nan de, or in Sanskrit, aham deham, that means I body. But when you don't write I hyphen body, what it implies is I am the body. Because in both Sanskrit and Tamil, uh, if <clears throat> if you've got a um, a subject and a subject complement, you don't need the uh, uh, <laughs> the um, uh, the copula. Copula is the ver if you say um, a is b, a is the subject, is is the copula, and b is the subject complement. Uh, the copula means the verb to be that links. Um, but, but links the subject with the subject complement. Usually, the copula is the verb to be. It can also be a few other verbs. You can also say uh, seems is also a copula. A seems to be B, uh, seems to be. But in, in, in Tamil, whenever you have a, a, ver a sentence consisting of a subject and a subject complement with no verb, the verb that is clearly implied is the verb to be. So aham aham means I am I. Aham deham means I am the body. And it's exactly the same in, in Tamil. 
So ahamaham or nan nan means I am I. Um, and as I said, Bhagavan often when he talked about um, about the death of ego, he said ego is the false awareness. I am this body. When that dies, what shines forth is I am I. But if you'll see in many English books, in talks, and in various translations of Bhagavan's works, this instead of translating it correctly as I am I, it's wrongly translated as I I. Even when, even in the context where Bhagavan says, um, uh, uh, for example, in talks, I remember there's one sentence that something to the effect: "When I is kept up as I alone, that means when I am I." That is Brahman. When it flies off at a tangent as I am this or I am that, that is ego. Um, so when he's talk, when he's contrasting uh, I am this body with, uh, with I am I, why they chose to put a hyphen, and instead of translating it correctly as I am I, why they chose to put a hyphen there, God alone knows. But someone started this, and all the sheep followed suit. So you'll find in the vast majority of English books, um, uh, nan nan or ahamaham is translated as I hyphen I, which doesn't actually mean anything. Even, uh, I will add here, even in some of the older translations by Sadoam, you will find this term I, I, I hyphen I occurs. The reason being Sadoam's knowledge of English was very limited. So he thought that was a shorthand way of saying I am I in English. Um, it never occurred to him, but it could mean anything other than I am I. Um, only when I said, when I explained to him, I, I hyphen I doesn't really mean anything in English. He said, doesn't it mean I am I? I said, no, it doesn't. It, it means it, it means nothing. And pe some people take it to mean, some people have said the vibration I, I. Uh, because they take sparana to mean vibration. A vibration is a type of sparana, but it's not the sparana Bhagavan is talking about. When Bhagavan talk, uses the term sparana, he's not talking about a vibration or flashing or anything. He's talking about the clarity of self-awareness, the clarity I am I. That is what he means by sparana. So anyway, the, the first sentence of this uh, of this verse, in the center of the cave of the that is the heart, Brahman, which is the... Uh, which is the one, alone shines directly as oneself, as I am I. That's the first sentence. Then he goes on to um, say, um, Tanne enni al alladu vayan adun udun al manatal idiyame sabai. Idiyame sabai means, may you reach the heart, how to reach the heart? He says, Tane any Aladu Vayan Bayu Adan Udan Al Manatal by the mind that sinks investigating itself or that sinks with the breath. He doesn't clearly. Um, uh, Mention here controlling, uh, restraining the breath. He said the mind that sink. That is, the the he the word he uses for sink here is al. Al is is uh, ar can also mean 
um, uh, dive. But in this context, as I say, it's more appropriate to take it as sink. And he uses this uh, verb twice. Um, and in this case, uh, all he's using is the root of the verb, but he's using it in the sense of a adjectival participle. So tane any al means that uh, that any here implies any literally means thinking, but it implies uh, investigating. So the mind that thinks investigating itself, or the mind that thinks with the breath. When he said the mind that thinks with the breath. He's he's not stating so clearly what is in what is clearly stated in Tamil, but it's uh, controlling the breath. It can simply mean the mind that sinks with the breath. That is, if you turn your attention within, the mind will subside along with the breath, um, because by by turning our attention within, the mind subsides. And when the mind subsides, the breath will also subside along with it. So in Tamil, he's put it in a much more ambiguous way to, to, to try and smooth over this wrong uh, inter this, this wrong meaning in the Sanskrit. Um, th though he himself wrote it in Sanskrit, he wrote it on behalf of Jagdisha. When he was asked to translate it into Tamil, he did so in a more nuanced way to, uh, to try and uh, bypass this uh, wrong interpretation. So when the mind, uh, uh, um, sorry, so this this sentence, the main uh, thing is idiome sabai. That means um, um, uh, may you reach the heart. It's an op sabai is an optative or an imperative. We can take it either way, but in English we can't. That is sabai, but I there clearly means it's a second person uh, uh, form of the verb. Um, so since it's second person in English, if you say you reach for heart, it sounds like a statement. If you if we want to say the imperative in English, we usually omit you. So to make it clear that you is there, I take it as an optative. In Tamil, it can be taken either as imperative or optative. So in, I say, may you reach the heart. That's the main thing. And there are two ways of re reaching the heart, either by the mind that sinks investigating itself or by the mind that sinks with the breath. How it sinks with the breath is uh, is Bhagavan left it a little bit ambiguous here because when the mind uh, uh, sinks by investigating itself, the breath will also sink. Um, so it, it, Bhagavan nicely left a little bit of ambiguity here to avoid the very glaring, um, the, the very glaring uh, incom uh, incompatibility with his teaching that is there in the Sanskrit. And two things here. Firstly, he does that. He makes the he he doesn't sp specify restraining the breath. He simply says it sinks with the breath. And he's also split this. What was one sentence in 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 Sanskrit? He split as two sentences in Tamil. So first, he says, "May you enter the heart uh, by the mind that uh, sinking, investigating itself, or by the mind sinking with the breath." Even if we take sinking with the breath mean to, uh, means to mean by pranayama, the mind sinking with the uh, with the breath that sinks due to breath restraint, 
even if we take it in that way, all he's saying is that you should enter the heart, you should reach the heart. In a sense, we can say, if you control the mind, if you um, if you uh, restrain the mind by restraining the breath, eventually the mind will subside into the heart. So that way you do reach, but it's only reaching the heart in the sense it, in when we're in layer, we, where is the mind in layer? It's, it's dissolved in the heart, because where else can it dissolve? The heart here means our real nature, that which shines within us as I am, that is the heart. So reaching the heart means subsiding back into our source. Even in layer, we subside back into our source. When we, every night when we fall asleep, we subside back into our source. The problem with sleep or nivikalpa samadhi or any other state of layer, sooner or later we come out of it. Whereas in Manonasa, we never come out of it, as he says in verse 13 of Upadeshundiya. So here he's... To, 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 to uh, make this verse a little bit more ambiguous and to make the... The, the wrong idea in the Sanskrit, less glaring. Bhagavan, firstly, he doesn't specify restraining the breath. Secondly, he says, with the breath, you can enter the heart. But then as a separate clause, he says, may you may you be one fixed in yourself. Amabil nitanabai. Um nitam means nishtan, one one who is who is uh, uh nishta means to be fixed, nishtan means one who is fixed. May you be one fixed in yourself. In other words, may you be as you actually are. Um, in order to be as we actually are, we have to investigate ourselves. Um, so he's made, he, Bhagavan is, has been very careful in his translation. to as He's translated what's in Sanskrit, but in a, such a way to make it, um, in a very nuanced way, to make it more ambiguous. Um, <clears throat> later, when um, when it, as I say, this this verse was first written by Bhagavan in 1915 in Sanskrit. Some years later, Bhagavan translated it into Tamil. I'm, I can't remember off the top of my head when he translated it into Tamil, but it wasn't immediately. It was some years later. Uh, but in 1928, in July 1928, Murugana asked Bhagavan to uh, compose a work. That, well, as Murugana put it in his in his Pyram to Uludunapadu, he what he prayed to Bhagavan is so that we we may be saved, so that the world may be saved. The world means the world of spiritual aspirants may be saved. Teach us the nature of reality and the means of attaining it. And so he asked Bhagavan to write Uludunapadu. But before he asked Bhagavan to write Uludunapadu, he had gathered together 21 verses, which Bhagavan had composed at various times in the past, miscellaneous verses. And using that as a base, he asked Bhagavan to expand on that. When Bhagavan wrote Uludunapadu over the, next, over the course of the next three weeks or so, one by one, Murugana started del del removing the old verses, saying, oh, this isn't quite appropriate, this isn't quite appropriate. So all except one or two of the original um, 21 verses were were not included in Uludunapadu. And even the, um, among the uh, one or two that were included, 
one of them he rewrote it and uh, he he uh, he he packed more meaning into it so Uludinapadu was almost entirely a, a completely fresh work composed in those three weeks from mid-July up to about the first week of August 1928. But then Murgan has suggested that the verses that have been relegated, which were by that time were about 21 verses or so, should become a supplement to Uludunapdu. So they were called Uludunapdu Anabandam. So in the first edition of Uludunapdu, the Anabandam had only about 21 verses or maybe one or two more but it was it was it wasn't the 40 that we know now but among those verses that were included were three verses but were previously Bhagavan had composed as a set that is verse, the verses that are now verses 9 25 and 40 of Uludhanapdhanabandam before the formation of Uludhanapdhanabandam they were a little separate work that Bhagavan had composed they were all translated verses verses 9 and 25 are translations of verses 46 and uh, 47 of um of uh, David Kalotram, that chap not not David Kalotram as such that is the chapter of David Kalotram but Bhagavan um Bhagavan translated into Tamil that the Jnana Vichara uh, Patalam. These two verses, 46 and 47, there are, for each of these two verses, there are two translations. There's the one that's included in Bhagavan's translation of the whole work, the whole chapter, and there's these two verses, verses 9 and 25 of um, Uludunapadu. And um, verse 40, Bhagavan translated from some other source. So, but when 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 Murugan and Bhagavan were arranging the verses of Uludhanapdu and Bandam in order, they were very carefully selecting which verse should go where, which verses were fitting together. That's why these three verses, though originally they were one set, they were split up. And this verse that was taken as verse nine was um was uh, included here immediately after this verse for a very important reason in order to make clear but um because if 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 anyone reads this verse eight or particularly the sanskrit version of it uh without considering considering it in the context of bhagavan's teachings as a whole they can easily be misled into thinking there are two ways. There's either um, there's either um, uh, uh, self-investigation or um, or restraining the breath. Or if you're Kavyaganta, you can take even a three ways. You can either have self-investigation. You can you can attain that manishta either by self-investigation or by diving or by um, uh, restraining the breath. But how you can dive, he doesn't say. But Bhagavan makes it clear in the Tamil verse, as I said, by including the verb R, which means sinking, with both the um with with both tane eni, which means investigating oneself, and vayu adun udan, which means with the breath. So the, the, the mind sinking, investigating itself, or sinking uh, um uh, with the breath 
So Bhagavan um, made it very clear that Kavyaganta's interpretation of this as three paths was wrong. But in in Tamil, he even tried to to um, to, to he tried to write it in a more I mean, he well, he did write, not tried. He did write it in a more nuanced way to include an ambiguity to 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 lessen the impact of this uh, clause. Pavala Chanana wrote that. So, um, so people reading this Sanskrit verse out of without considering it in the context of Bhagavan's teachings as a whole, they can easily take it to mean, but. There are two ways to attain Atmanishta. Either we uh, investigate ourselves, or we can uh, just control the breath. If we control the breath, then we'll attain Atmanishta. That's the implication of the Sanskrit verse. And even slightly, in the, I mean, not so blatantly, but also slightly in the Tamil verse. But to make it clear that this is, this is, um, this is not Bhagavan's real idea, he, he and Murugan had decided to place immediately after this verse one that states clearly that be, that only the awareness that exists and shines as I, in other words, the pure awareness I am, only that uh, will give liberation by eradicating ego. Thereby, it, it, that is the next verse, thereby implies that it's only by the mind sinking deep within by self-investigations, swam chimbata, thereby dissolving forever in the heart, but we can be firmly fixed in and uh, in, in and as ourselves. So the next verse I'll deal with in more uh, detail next time, but I'll just briefly read the meaning of it. What he says in the next verse is, what awareness is the blemishless, motionless eye form in the heart lotus, only that awareness, which is I, uh, will give inner liberation by removing I. No. What, what that means is, when he, when he says, what awareness, only that awareness, this is a particular sentence formation that is very common in both Tamil and Sanskrit. You, you first refer to something uh, in a what clause, and then in the next clause, you, you refer to it, the same thing as that. So in English, we would usually put this as a as a relative clause. Only in English, how we would express this idea normally is only that awareness, uh, which is a blemishless, motionless eye form in the heart lotus, will give liberation by removing eye. But in, in the way it's expressed in Sanskrit and Tamil is, what awareness is the blemishless, motionless eye form in the heart lotus, only that awareness, which is I, will give liberation by removing I. No. What he means by that is, I'll just read the explanatory paraphrase to make it slightly clearer. What awareness exists and shines in the heart lotus as the blemishless, immaculate or pure and motionless eye form, what he means by, uh, uh, he says, aham uruvam. Uruvam means form, but it implies here swarupa. So, aham uruvam implies um, uh, aham swarupa, in other words, atma swarupa, the swarupa or real nature of I. Um, only that awareness, which is I, namely atma swarupa, our real nature, will give inner liberation, 
in liberation can also be be interpreted as liberation, which is I, but that's a bit uh, that's not the main meaning in the liberation by removing, expelling, or banishing uh, I. I here refers to ego. Uh, that is the ego which is to be eradicated. So the implication of this verse is only that awareness which shines as I will give in the liberation by removing ego. Uh, in other words, it's only by attending to that fundamental awareness I am that uh, we can attain uh, uh, inner liberation by removing ego. So that this is, Bhagavan added this verse here as a corrective to that Pavla Chalana Rodat idea. Pavla Chalana Rodat is not an adequate means. That Pavla Chalana Rodat means um, res uh, restraining the movement of the breath. Is that is not an adequate means to achieve Atmanishta. Bhagavan, in order to, to make that clear, he wrote this. He he included this ninth verse in this particular place, just as a corrective to that. Um. Sorry, I, my explanation has been a very long explanation, for which I apologize, but I hope it was clear all that I said. Does anyone have any questions about this? Thank you, Michael. Um, so the first question is um, from, um, alas, as Ram uh, asks, um, so should breath observation which is a method, uh, you know, um, that Bhagavan has said if somebody really wants to practice Punayama, he said just watch the breath. Yeah. Um, so the question from Ram is, should breath observation even be pursued? Not at all necessary. That is, for people who wanted to do, do Pranayama, Bhagavan said, in order to, to do Pranayama correctly, you need to do it under the guidance of a of, a, of an experienced yogi, because it's if we if if without proper guidance you try to restrain the mind by controlling the breath, it can have adverse effects. It can lead to mental mental aberration and everything. That's why it's always said it has to be done under the guidance of an experienced yogi. But Bhagavan said all that they achieve by by their by um their careful breath restraint their, their careful formulas how many how many mantras how many moments you should breathe in how many moments you should hold the breath how many moments you should breathe out or there are so many formulas they have in in uh, yoga for for this and you have to go through different exercises to achieve um competent i mean to achieve mastery of all these things um all this is unnecessary. Bhagavan said, if you want to achieve that effect, simply observe the breath. If you simply observe the breath, automatically the breath will come down. If ever in the course of your day, you find yourself in a much agitated state of mind, maybe you're under a lot of pressure, got a lot of worries, and your mind is much agitated, if you want to calm yourself down, rather than taking some pills or something, a very effective way to calm the mind down is simply observe the breathing. If you observe your breathing, you will find the breathing will calm down and the mind will calm down along with it. So that's a very simple technique for calming the mind. But there's an even more effective means to calm the mind. 
if you if rather than observing the breath, if you observe yourself, in other words, if you're self-attentive, that will that is the most effective means to calm down the mind. For those of us who are drawn to this path of self-investigation, there's no appeal in this uh, watching the breath. And actually, if you, what you will find, if you some people think first you have to calm the mind down and then you can attend to yourself. But if you try to calm the mind down. One of the most effective ways to calm the mind down other than self-investigation is simply watching the breath. But if you if you habituate the mind to watching the breath and then you try to attend to yourself, you will find that the breath keeps on distracting your attention away from yourself. Back. Uh, so it, it's better not to go down that course. It's better to start right from the start attending to ourselves. No aid is needed to attend to ourselves. The one thing that we all know clearly at all times is I am. Um, so since we are all clearly aware of ourselves, we can at any moment, whatever we may be doing, we can always, if we have enough interest, enough love to do so, we can always turn our attention back to ourselves. And turning our attention back to ourselves is the most effective way to calm the mind down. So if we if we are often practicing this um this uh this self-investigation our mind will tend to become less and less agitated because it it's more natural for it to be in a calm state because it's often attending to itself of course sometimes it will be all even the best of us get agitated by something or other at times but um it will the degree to which we get agitated and, and the frequency with which we get agitated will reduce to the extent to which we practice this self-investigation. I guess my fundamental question is, if we go by the uh, watching the breath, actually is it taking us in a wrong direction, which is we are going to only get manolaya and not manonasha. So is it actually detrimental if we watch well, the breath, this is my fundamental question. I don't think you'll achieve manolaya by watching the breath. That is that is why they have all these exercises in um, in yoga, uh, all these pranayama exercises. Because Bhagavan often, when Bhagavan was talking about yoga, he said he Bhagavan often pointed out how is it possible to stop mental activity, to stop thought, in other words by a thought. If you try to stop the mind, you're trying to, you're using a thought to try and stop thought. So it, it they, they, we, we can't simply by meditation or any mental exercise, we can't stop the activity of the mind because the mind has to be active in order to stop its activity. So it, it's a self-defeating thing. So there are two ways in which we can stop the activity of the mind. One way is by pranayama. That by watching the breath, it'll calm the mind down. It will not stop the mind entirely. But by by actual pranayama, if you get if you by advanced uh, practice of pranayama under proper guidance, you can gain the skill with that yogi on the banks of the Ganga had to often go into manolaya. But there's no benefit in that. Um, so the 
you, you, you're not in danger of going into Manolea simply by observing the breath. You'll just be calming your mind down. Um, but since we can calm the mind down more effectively by attending to ourselves, um, it, it's, it's, not, it's not necessary for us to, I mean, it, it's it's an unnecessary distraction to to attend to try uh, watching the breath. In this context, I'll just say one other thing, that is, Patanjali's yoga sutra, Patanjali's yoga, as taught in the Yoga Sutra, is called Ashtanga Yoga. That is the eight limbs of yoga. Anga means the limbs. But whenever Bhagavan talked about yoga, he generally talked about only one of those eight limbs, that is this pranayama. Why is that? Because pranayama is the key technique in, in yoga. The, the, other, the other practices are um, yama, niyama, uh, I've forgotten the order in which they come, yama and niyama are the various types of um moral internal and external restraints um moral restraints and so on and um then there's dharana dhyana different types of concentration meditation going up all the way up to samadhi so the pranayama is one of these eight but pranayama is the key to yoga because as Bhagavan made clear, merely by meditation, you can by mental activity, you cannot stop mental activity. So there are only two ways to stop mental activity. Deliberate. I mean, of course, we we all stop mental activity every day when we fall asleep, but that's because we're tired. But apart from tiredness, and you can also stop mental activity by taking some anesthetic drug or by <coughs> getting a, a blow on the head and going into coma. These are all ways of stopping mental activity but um other, but um for for it, it stopping the activity of the mind deliberately the the two main means are one is pranayama one is uh apmavichara self self investigating or self attentiveness if you go down the pranayama route you will be able to stop all mental activity but only temporarily that is what Bhagavan is saying in the eighth paragraph of Nana. It's only a temporary dissolution of mind. Therefore, pranayama cannot destroy the mind. So, since all the, all the dharana, dhyana, and other practices that they have in yoga, these are none of these will work on their own without pranayama. So, pranayama is the key technique in yoga for restraining the mind, but it will lead only to manolaya, not to manonasa. So the, 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 nivik, the yogis don't use the term nivikalpa samadhi, um, but it's, it, I've forgotten what, it, what term is actually used in the yoga sutra, but it's equivalent of nivikalpa samadhi. It's only, it's only a state of manolaya, it's of no use spiritually. So that's why Bhagavan insisted that the only means to restrain the mind in such a way that it will never rise again is Atmavichara. So why not take Atmavichara from the very beginning? Why to go all these roundabout routes like uh, yoga? Because yoga in and of itself is useless. Yoga, the yogis, in order to uh, bring about the permanent right. dissolution of the mind, the permanent chitta vritti nirodha, nirodha they, the only way 
is by self-investigation. So why not take the self-investigation from the start? That's Bhagavan's point. And in yoga, they, in, they, they don't mention this self-investigation clearly or explicitly in yoga. So they're only seeking this, um, this nirvikalpa samadhi, which is a very pleasant state, but it's not, it's like sleep is a very pleasant state, but it's of no use. We're not, we don't get any closer to destroying the mind, however long we may remain in, in nirvikalpa samadhi. Because the vasanas all remain intact, and when the mind comes out, it will again wander under the sway of its vasanas. Thank you, Michael. Um, so, at, uh, in in one of the articles that you wrote on this topic, there was one sentence um, I remember. Um, I may not be hundred percent right, but this is what I remember. While all other practices are neither sufficient nor necessary, self-attention is both sufficient and necessary. Yes, yes. Yes, no other practice is necessary. No other practice is sufficient. The only practice that is sufficient is self-investigation. So it is also the only practice that is necessary. Right. So there is this misconception that you have to do something else and calm the mind down and then get into self-investigation. Well, we don't have to. You, you really know, don't have to, in... because the most effective means to calm the mind down is self-investigation. Right. Because as Bhagavan says, Tedinal Otumpidicum, to be extent Tedinal Otumpidicum is a sentence in verse 25 of Uludunapadu. That means if sought, it takes flight. That is to be extent to which we attend to ego, ego will subside. So the most when ego subsides, everything subsides along with it. So the most effective means to, to calm the mind down is this practice of self-investigation. So we don't have to calm the mind down in order to investigate ourselves. We have to investigate ourselves in order to calm the mind down permanently. Right. So no other practices are necessary at all. Right. And even if we do the other practices, they're not sufficient. So it, why to follow a practice that is neither necessary nor sufficient when we have a very simple practice that is both necessary and sufficient? Exactly. It's the it's only practice that is necessary. Sorry, it's the only practice that is sufficient and therefore the only practice that is necessary. Right. Um, so, and, and Swami used to illustrate this with the story of a guy who was learning a bicycle remember that yeah yes 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 if, <laughs> if you if you want to learn if if you're given a cycle to cycle to Belor, Belor is a town to the north of Tiruvannamalai and you've never ridden a bicycle before you have to practice but rather than practicing on the road to Tirukoilo which is leading south in other words away from Belor, the, the the logical thing to do is to practice your cycling on the road to Belor. it may take you you may have to go 10 or 20 miles before you master the skill of cycling. But by the time you've got there, you're at least 10 or 20 miles closer to Velour. I think Velour is maybe about 50 miles north of, um, of Tiruvannamalai. So you're, you're well on your way. Whereas if you practice cycling in the opposite direction, you're further away from your goal. So the, the wise thing to do is to practice self-investigation from the beginning. And as Bhagavan said, 
any amount of effort you make in any other path is cannot be equal to even a few moments of effort made in this path. This is such an effective path. So it's if we've understood Bhagavan correctly, we will understand no other practices are necessary. The only necessary practice is this self-investigation. So why not start with this? And this is something anyone can do. Because as Murugana says in the Anupalavi of uh, Amavide, uh, one's self is so very clear, even to the even to the dullest of person, but in comparison, uh, a nelikai on the palm is uh, an amlaka uh, on the palm is uh, is unclear in comparison to how clearly we are all aware I am. So when I am is shining so clearly at every moment of our, there's never a moment when we have any doubt about our existence. We always know clearly, yes, I do exist. It's shining so clearly. Why not we attend to that ever-shining existence of ourselves? Thank you, Michael. And though we say oh. existence of ourselves, of course, our existence and ourselves are not two different things. It's because of the limitation of language. That is, what we are is our existence. Right. Um, so, um, so, Malcolm, I'm going to come to your question soon. I know you asked earlier, but just pulling up the related questions here. Um, so, in this context, um, Sudha is asking, um, but isn't something better than nothing? Um, so not just pranayama, there is pratyahara, you know, dharana, dhyana, and samadhi, so forth. So I think you answered it, but do you want to well, add Well, yeah, it's okay. Um, yeah, all these practices are there, but where are they leading? They, they cannot even lead to layer without pranayama. They may give some concentration of mind, they may give some clarity of mind, may... If, Better than these yoga practices, actually, are the bhakti practices, because the bhakti practices are more effective at at um, at uh, purifying the mind, because the impurities of the mind are the vishaya vasanas. So the mind is purified to the extent to which we stop it rushing out in many directions. So by focusing all our love on God, we are thereby purifying the mind. Because to the extent to which we fix our mind on God, we are not allowing the mind to be to wander after other things. So the most the most effective type of meditation is meditating with love on God. Because God is an object of love. What they meditate on yoga, yoga doesn't talk much about love. But so they're meditating their their various practices are just aims about the principal aim of yoga is chitta vritti nirodha and Bhagavan said that is not a worthy aim. Well, in Nana, in the sixth paragraph, he says, However many thoughts rise, so what? Uh, one second. So you may want to explain what chitta vritti nirodha means. Chitta vritti nirodha. That's what I, I mentioned it earlier. That's what. Um, uh, um, Patanjali says, I think it's in, it's right at the beginning of the Yoga Sutra. It's not in the first verse, it may be the second or the third verse, but it is, it, uh, it's really the opening statement of, um, of uh, the, the Yoga, uh, Yoga Sutra. Sutra. 
it's a definition of what is yoga. Yoga's chitta vritti nirodaha. Yoga is restraining is the restraint or curbing of the chitta vrittis. Chitta here means mind, vritti means the activity or movement of the mind. In other words, thoughts. So stopping thoughts is what yoga is all about. Bhagavan is not concerned with stopping thoughts. He says, however many thoughts rise, so what? In the sixth paragraph of Nana, however many thoughts rise, so what? As and when each thought arise, if we vigilantly investigate to whom does it arise, it will be clear to me. What he means there, he doesn't mean but if we question to whom, but if we investigate to whom. So to whom do all thoughts appear? Only to me. So what he means by investigating to whom is turning our attention away from whatever may appear back towards ourself, the one to whom it appears. And having turned our attention back to ourself, we must hold on to that self-attentiveness. That's what he means in the next sentence when he says, if one investigates who am I, the mind will return to its birthplace and the thought that had risen will also subside. So it, investigating to whom means it turning our attention away from whatever has appeared back towards ourself. Investigating who am I means holding on, having turned our attention back to ourself, we need to then hold on to that self-attentiveness. By holding on to that self-attentiveness, the mind will subside back into its birthplace, and the thought which had risen, because there's no one to attend to it, will also subside. So, the, 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 the chitta vritti nirodha, the, the, the curbing of mental activity is a byproduct of self-investigation. It is not the aim of self-investigation. The aim of self-investigation is what? To know who am I. That's what self-investigation is all about. Why do we attend to ourselves? In order to see what we actually are. We are not attending to ourselves just to stop thoughts. That's a byproduct. We are attending to ourselves in order to see what we actually are. Because only when we see what we actually are, in other words, only when we are aware of ourselves as we actually are, will ego thereby be annihilated. And only when ego is annihilated, well, annihilation of ego is itself manonasa, which is liberation. So totally two different goals. It's two different yoga, goals. goals yes, 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 totally yes, different goals. And I think yes. a lot of people are confusing. The, the goal, the of, goal yoga, of yoga is achieved by Atma Vichara. Because by Atma Vichara, the thoughts are, are automatically right. uh, 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 curbed. Because if there's no one to attend, thoughts cannot rise without us attending to them. They can't just arise. With, but where do thoughts arise? They arise in our awareness. So if we if we refuse to direct our awareness towards them, they will automatically subside. So the goal of yoga is achieved by uh, Atma Vichara. But the goal of Atma Vichara is not achieved by yoga. That is the important thing to understand. Exactly. That's uh, well said. Um... Uh, uh, one, I'll mention one other very sad thing about Advaita. Because over the years, um, the, uh, the, uh, that is, most Advaitins don't understand the practical implications. They study all these texts. They study the Upanishads, the Brahma Sutra, the Bhagavad Gita, and they study various commentaries on them and various other texts, but they fail to understand what is the practical implication of all these teachings. So, 
most um, most classical Advaitins don't have a clear idea what is meant by Atma Vichara. The word Vichara is used there, but they take Vichara to mean a mental act exercise, um, discriminating Dhritrisya um, Viveka, that is dis- discern, dis- distinguishing the seer from the seen as a mental exercise, not, 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 in, not in a practical way, but in a mental exercise, understanding the difference between the seer and the seen, um, and analyzing the five states. All these various prakriyas, they take these prakriyas to be vichara. These prakriyas or methodologies, in, uh, or these are just different ways of analyzing our experience in order to understand what we are not and what we are. What we are... What we are not is all is this body consisting of five sheaths. What we are is awareness. A little bit of discrimination, a little bit of conceptual analysis is necessary to understand this. But this is not vichara. This is the foundation of vichara. Because if we don't understand what we are not, we won't be. If we're told to attend to ourselves and we take ourselves to be the body or take ourselves to be the mind, we'll be attending to something other than what we actually are. So our aim is to attend to what we actually are. What we actually are is just awareness. It's just that fundamental awareness I am, the pure awareness I am. That is what we need to attend to. But most um, most classical Advaitins fail to understand this. So you will often hear the le- those who give lectures on classical Advaita, they will often say, uh, we don't agree with the philosophy of yoga, but the practices of yoga are very useful because they've got no, they, they don't understand what the practice of Advaita is. The practice of Advaita, it's clear in the word itself, Advaita means not two, not one without a second. So what what practice can there be that does not involve two? In any practice, you've got a meditator or someone doing whatever the practice may be, you've got a doer of that practice. In the case of meditation, you have a choice. Either you meditate on something other than yourself. If you meditate on something other than yourself, you've got two. All the yoga practices are meditating on something other than themselves, on the breath or on something other than themselves. Either we meditate on something other than ourselves, if we don't meditate on something other than ourselves, what's the only alternative to meditate on ourselves? If we meditate on ourselves, where are there? there's no two there, because the one who's meditating and what is meditated upon are one and the same. So, Atmavichara, self attentiveness, as taught by Bhagavan, alone is the correct practice of, um, of, uh, um, of, of uh, Advaita. But most classical Advaitins fail to understand this. Though they're very familiar with the word bichara, they don't even understand what the word bichara means. Bhagavan has, in one verse in Uladunapadu, Bhagavan has summarized the practical implication of the whole of Vedanta, taking just three words from Vedanta, the, one of the Mahavakyas, Tattvamasi. In Tamil, it's not even three words. In Tamil, it's just two words, aduni. So in verse 32 of Uludunapti, what Bhagavan says is, um, this is a very important verse, because in this, this is Bhagavan's commentary, we can say, all, that is the, 
in order to be a Vedanta Achara, you, but it is usually said that you have to write commentary on the Prasthanatraya. In order to establish your interpretation of Vedanta as the correct interpretation, uh, you have, to, or, or at least to argue that it's the correct interpretation, whether others agree with you or not is another matter, you have to write a com commentaries on the Prasthanatraya. That means on the Upanishads, at least the 10 principal Upanishads, the Brahma Sutra and the Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavan hasn't written commentaries on these, but he's written commentary. The, this one verse of Uludunapadu is Bhagavan's commentary on one of the Mahavakyas, Tattvamasi, which is the essence of Vedanta. And he, from this Mahavakya, Bhagavan points out in this verse what we should understand. <clears throat> he says, um, Aduni Indru Amaregal Atiduvum. When that means when the Vedas proclaim that is you, Tane Edu Indru Tantendu Iradu. Instead of oneself being knowing oneself as what? Adunan Idu Andru Andru Enal Urin in Mayinal. Um uh Thinking I am not, not I am that, not this, is due to non-existence of strength. Endrum aduve tanai amavadal, because that alone is always seated as oneself. So, Bhagavan, Bhagavan puts this in a very. This is the whole of Vedanta, Bhagavan. Well, the practical implication of the whole of Vedanta, Bhagavan has packed into this verse. The most important part of this verse is the um, is the first uh, two and three uh, sorry first one and three quarter lines. That is, um, when the Vedas proclaim that is you instead of oneself knowing being oneself as what. What does he imply by this? What he implies by this is, but as soon as we hear the Vedas say that is you. What should our response be? Our response should be to investigate, oh, if I am that, then what am I? So we should investigate what am I. By investigating what <coughs> am I, we should know what we actually are. And by knowing what we actually are, we will thereby be what we actually are. Because we cannot know what we actually are without being what we actually are. So that is what, that is that first one and three quarter lines, that is the, the whole of that Bhagavan's commentary on the whole of Vedanta is there. What is the implication of Tattvamasi is that we should investigate what am I, and thereby know and be what we actually are. But instead of doing so, um, the, the classical Advaitins, they, they go on thinking, I am that. I am Brahman, I'm not this body, I'm not, I'm not the they they go on with all their prakriyas, they're analyzing the that is Drikdrisya Vivika, distinguishing the seer from the scene, uh, analyzing the, the three states and distinguishing what is permanent from what is impermanent, what is changing from unchanging. All these are called prakriyas. That is what Bhagavan, Bhagavan summarizes all these prakriyas as thinking, I am that, not this. Because that's what the prakriyas are all meant to make us understand. But we are, what we actually are is not this body or mind or anything. What we are 
is only that which shines in our heart as I, because that alone is always seated as oneself. So the the implication of uh, um, of uh, Mahavakya, that is you, that there refers to Brahman. So why do the Upanishads, why do the Vedas say that if Upanishads are part of the Vedas, so why do the Vedas tell us that Brahman is, that you are yourself a Brahman, that is you, or uh, actually Tatsvamasi means that you are, uh, but in Tamil it's Aduni, which means that is you, or you are that, you can take it either way, but... Um, but it all amounts to the same. But the whole point of uh, Mahavakya is till now we have been looking for Brahman or God or happiness or knowledge or whatever we're looking for. We're looking for it outside ourselves because whatever we're looking for seems to be lacking in ourselves. So we look for it outside ourselves. I seem to be not happy enough. So I look for, so since I'm not happy enough, it seems to me that happiness is not in me. Therefore, I must look outside to find happiness. And um, I'm a very small creature. God is very big. So God must be something outside of me. So we, the natural tendency of the mind is to look for anything, to, to look for things outside ourselves, whether it's Brahman or God or whatever it is, we look for it outside ourselves. So the whole point of the Mahavakyas, uh, which, which proclaims you are that, is to turn our attention away from outside, looking for that outside. Since if I am that, then what am I? We need to, there's no that other than, other than me. So I need to know who am I? I need to investigate me, not investigate anything else. But the, there are historic reasons why, um, why classical Advaita hasn't emphasized this. Because Advaita was a philosophy that existed before Shankara. Shankara had the divine mission to broaden the appeal of Advaita by making it acceptable to a broader audience. So in Shankara often had to dilute the deeper teachings of Advaita. So it is often, even the classical Advaitins often observe but the Advaita of Shankara's Paramaguru, um, Godapada, was more radical than the Advaita of Shankara. Uh, even classical Advaitins admit that. The reason is Shankara experiences exactly the same as Godapada's experience. But Godapada wasn't trying to popularize or, or broaden the appeal of Vedanta or of Advaita, whereas Shankara had that mission, that divine mission to broaden the appeal of, um, of Advaita. So in order to broaden the appeal of Advaita, he had to answer so many objections. I haven't studied the commentaries of Shankara, but if you study the commentaries of Shankara on the on the Upanishads or the uh, Brahma Sutra or the Bhagavad Gita, he keeps on bringing up Purvapaksha, Purvapaksha means contrary arguments. So he keeps on raising arguments that others can raise against Advaita in order to defend Advaita against those arguments. But, in, so he goes into very, very elaborate explanations which are meant for others. 
And some of the explanations he gives are not actually even the correct explanation. For example, in his commentaries, he says that though, um, though, again, I haven't read this, this is what I've heard said, so um, don't quote me on this, but this is what I believe from what I've heard. He, he says that though... Uh, Agamya and Prarabdha are destroyed by Jnana, sorry, Agamya and Sanchita are destroyed by Jnana. Prarabdha does remain for the duration of the life of the, of the body of the Jiva Mukta. Bhagavan has has written a reply to that in a later verse of, um, of, uh, of Anubandham. Bhagavan says, um, I think I'll get that verse. It's I think 30, one of the early verse. Well, something like when the husband dies, all the three wives are yeah, going exactly, to Yeah, exactly, exactly. I'll just get um, the verse number. It's um, So when uh, the ego dies, it's 33. all the three karmas will, will yeah, die. Yeah. Right? Uh, but, but what he says there is, but the wording is important. Um, so I'll get the actual wording. Um Thirty-three. Yeah, what what Bhagavan says here is, um, Sanchita agamyangal sa, saravam nyaniku uvinjam ennal vetra kelviku vilambum solam. What he says is that what that means is saying Sanchita and agamya do not adhere to the nyani, prarabdha does remain is a statement said to the question of others. So Bhagavan is explaining here why Shankara said like that. It's to the questions of others. Because Shankara was answering the objections raised by others, he often had to give diluted explanations to in order, if he had given more radical explanations, if he had said like Bhagavan says in Uludunaktu, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. Therefore, investigating what this ego is, is giving up everything. If Shankara had said like that, nobody would have come to, I mean, very, very few people would have been attracted to Advaita. So he, Shankara had to dilute Advaita in many ways in order to appeal, to broaden the appeal. So as Bhagavan says here, what he said in his commentaries about this is a statement said to the question of others. What does Bhagavan mean by others, Vetra? What he means by others is those who are not coming to this path of going within, of, of Atma Vichara, the true path of Atma Vichara. Then Bhagavan explains why this is not the this this explanation cannot be a correct explanation. Just as the husband dying, a wife does not remain unwidowed, but doer dying, all the three karmas will cease. That is what that what he means by that is if a husband has three wives and passes away, all three wives become widows. You, you can't have one wife who remains unwidowed. They're all three of them are widowed. Likewise, when ego, the doer, dies, all the three karmas will cease. Because the ego is not only the doer, it's also the experiencer. So how when ego is absent, who is there remaining to experience the prarabdha? 
a reason Shankara said, Prarabdha remains, because people take the jnani to be the body, and obviously for the body there seems to be a prarabdha. So he makes Shankar concedes, yes, prarabdha does remain for the duration of the body. But according to Bhagavan, the body is not the jnani. The jnani is jnana itself. So Bhagavan is not criticizing Shankara here. He's explaining why Shankara said that. He had to say that to the questions of others. Bhagavan also often gave diluted answers because when people weren't able to understand deeper answers, he had to give you a diluted answer, like those three sentences that were later added in the eighth paragraph of Nana about the, 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 the uh, mind subsides in sleep, the prana does not subside. That is, that is a diluted answer. That's not the correct teachings of Bhagavan, but even Bhagavan gave that answer to the questions of others. In the same way Shankara gave answers to the questions of others. So because Shankara was, was giving teachings for the benefit of others, he, um, he, he, he wrote a whole work explaining Tattvamasi. It, it, the work is called Vakya Vritti. And basically what he's doing in that verse, he's analyzing what is meant by that, what is meant by you, how that is you and you are that. But all these is answers to the objections of others. The simple truth is, when we are told you are that, if I am that, then obviously, if, if I am Brahman, then obviously I'm not this person I take myself to be. Obviously I'm not this body. So who am I? We should have once take to self-investigation that those three words, tattvamasi, should be enough to turn our attention back to ourselves. If we are mature uh, aspirant, it's only for the sake of others that all this analysis is necessary. So because Shankara has gone in, has given elaborate explanations for the benefit of others, people fail to understand, and because everyone take Shankara to be the, the foremost exponent of Advaita, they, people fail to understand that most of his explanations were given to the answers of others. They're not necessary for a spiritual aspirant. All that is necessary for a spiritual aspirant is this Mahavakya, you are that. If a, a mature aspirant will understand when they're told you are that, oh, if I am that, then what am I? And they'll turn their attention back within to investigate who am I. So a lot of what Shankara wrote is for the benefit of others, not for the benefit of spiritual aspirant. That's why in Bhagavan's, um, Bhagavan's uh, when Bhagavan translated Vivaka Chudamani into Tamil prose, in his Avatarake or introduction, he wrote that though Shankara wrote all these um, Prasthanatreya, they are not useful for the real spiritual aspirant. So he condensed it all in this work, Viveka Chudamani. Um, I'm not sure if I can... <clears throat> it's, it, that is Bhagavan. Most of this introduction Bhagavan wrote on the, the introduction to Viveka Chudamani, most of it is one long sentence. So I probably can't translate it here. But he he does the gist of it towards the end. Bhagavan says, but though he wrote all these prastanatraya bhasha, this is not useful for the real spiritual aspirant. So he's given the essence of it all in this Vivekachura money. But Bhagavan has simplified things far more than Vivekachura money. Bhagavan has simplified everything in Uludu Napadu. 
Thank you, Michael. Because Bhagavan's teachings are for spiritual aspirants. Shankara, though Shankara, that is, it's the same Bhagavan who appeared in the form of Shankara. So we're not saying anything against Shankara, but the mission that that particular manifestation of Bhagavan in the form of Shankara, it had a particular mission to broaden the appeal of Advaita in order to bring in more genuine spiritual aspirants. Maybe so the majority of people are not yet ready for the spirit for the Advaita, but to, in order to draw people closer to the heart of Advaita, Shankaran had to had to broaden the appeal of it. But it's up to each individual how deep we go. If we want to go deep in in Advaita, we need to go into the actual practice of Advaita. The practice of Advaita can only be self-attentiveness, because only in self-attentiveness you you have one without a second. You've got no second there. Kameva Advaitium in self-attentiveness. So to emphasize what is the practical implication of all of Vedanta, that is Bhagavan's mission. That's why Bhagavan didn't write commentaries on the Prasthana Treya. He just wrote this simple verse giving what is the practical implication of uh, this simple verse. I'm referring to verse 32 of Ulutnapdu. In that verse, he give, gives us a practical implication of the whole of um, the whole of uh, Vedanta, because all of Vedanta is summarized in these Mahavakyas. And what is the practical implication of that? He gives us in this verse 32 of Ulutunapdu. Right. Sorry, I've spoken for a very long time today, so yeah, maybe we should try and... Sorry. Yeah, I'll, I'll wrap it up in a, a couple of questions more. Yeah. Um, so, uh, of course, you know, uh, um, and so I'm sorry, coming back to Sudha's question, um, so Sudha, do you want to have a follow-up question to this? Are you here, Sudha? Okay, you should, so, you should, if she's not, I can just add one more thing because she may listen to this afterwards. That is, um, the if if we feel that we need something, an aid to this practice of self-investigation, rather than taking to any other practice, the most effective aid and support in this practice is Bhagavan's teachings. By often reading and thinking carefully about Bhagavan's teachings, Bhagavan's teachings are always pushing, directing our attention back towards ourselves. They're always encouraging us to attend to ourselves. So the best aid to putting Bhagavan's teachings into practice is studying Bhagavan's teachings. In other words, sravana and manana of our guru's teachings, sravana means, literally means hearing, but it means attentively attentively reading or hearing Bhagavan's teaching, paying close attention to what he says, that's Sravana. Manana is thinking about it carefully, making sense of it, trying to understand what he's saying. These are the greatest aid to the practice, which is called what, what is called Nidityasana. Nidityasana means deep contemplation. In this context, it means contemplation on, on ourselves. In other words, Atmavichara. So that's the greatest aid. So other than Bhagavan's teachings, we don't need any other aid. We, if we continuously study Bhagavan's original writings, Arunachastuti Panchakam, Uludunapadu, Upadeshundia, Nana, 
armor bidet and such works, these will be constantly encouraging us to turn back within. And that um, is far greater help than trying to do some other type of meditation, which is not at all necessary. It has no real connection with this practice of Atma Vichara, what, no connection at all. For the goal we are pursuing. Yeah, for the goal. I mean, it's fine for those who want to do these things. We're not exactly, objecting right. to the Otherwise, the other ones want to do that, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, I mean, uh, why there are so many different... Um, spiritual paths, so many different religions, so many different philosophies, because they appeal to different minds. Yeah. But if we if we are truly attracted to Bhagavan and his teachings, nothing else is necessary. We are we are supremely fortunate if we are attracted to Bhagavan, because this is the ultimate. But we're yeah. not we're not here to put down others or to say exactly, uh, to yeah. comment on others. It's just not for us. And that's what I, you know, think I responded to, uh, to Sula to. You know, I mean, if others want to practice something else, we're fine. But now that yeah. they've been attracted to Bhagwan, that's what Michael is recommending for us. Yeah, self investigation. It's is not what Michael's recommending. It's what Bhagwan is recommending. Exactly. What Bhagwan is recommending, right? So, uh, does that answer your question, Sandy? I think his question was, uh, didn't Bhagwan recommend uh, many paths? So, yes. Uh, yeah. Yes, it did. Ba Thank Bhagavan you. didn't recommend many parts. In Upadesha India, Bhagavan has talked about all the different practices. But if you pay close attention, if you do real sravana of uh, Upadesha India, it's clear what Bhagavan is doing. In verse 3, he says, in verse 2, he says, action will not give liberation. Then in verse 3, he says, action that is done without desire for the fruit, in other words, nishkarmiya karma, done for God, that means done for the love of God, will purify the mind and show the way to liberation. And then from verse 4 onwards, he begins to talk about what are the nishkarmiya karmas we can do for the love of God. There are three types of karmas we can do for the love of God. There's actions of body, actions of mind, actions of, sorry, actions of speech, actions of mind. Actions of body, that we do for the love of God are called puja. Actions of speech that we do for the love of God are called japa. And actions of um, mind that we do for the love of God are called dhyana. So he then de devotes one verse to each of these. And he shows how each one is more effective than the other one. That is, more effective than puja is japa, more effective than japa is dhyana. He, so he, he's not recommending these, he's just showing the... Uh, the relative efficacy of each of these for purifying the mind. And what's the result of purifying the mind? When the mind is purified, it will show the way to liberation. What does that mean by that? When the mind is purified, but it gains clarity. And the clear mind will understand that karma is not the way to liberation. If karma is not the way to liberation, karma means action, so doing is not the way to liberation. Then what can I do to get liberation? Stop doing, just be. Being is the way to liberation. So in verse, after dealing with these, this path of nishkarmiya karma, which Bhagavan doesn't take nishkarmiya karma to be a separate path, but preliminary stages of the path of bhakti is the karma, path of karma, up to verse 7. That is the highest karma you can do is meditating on God with love. 
But he then in verse 8, he switches it. He says, Ravavan Anyabhava, meditating on God as something other than oneself, meditating an Anyabhava, that is meditating on him as not other than oneself, with the understanding he is I, that is a Nathanamutum, that is the best among all. So what he's referring to in verse 8 is Atmavachara. When we understand that God isn't something outside, God is what is shining in our heart as I, what should we meditate on? We should meditate only on I. And so meditating on I, that is what he means by Ananya Baba, meditating on nothing other than I, that is best of all. And then in the next verse, verse 9, he says, by the strength of such meditation, being in Sat Baba, the state of being, which transcends uh, uh, Bhavana, that transcends all mental activity, that is Parabhakti Tattva. So this path of jnana is the culmination of the path of bhakti and jnana are not two separate paths. The early part of the path of bhakti is the karma path. The later stage of the path of bhakti is the jnana path. When we come to meditate on God as us, nothing other than ourselves, that is the path of jnana, that is the pinnacle of the path of yoga, of, of bhakti, because that leads to parabhakti, the state of just being as we actually are. The state of being as we actually are is the state of complete surrender. And then in the next, uh, then uh, he summarizes it all in verse 10 by saying, being having subsided in the place from which we rose, that is karma, bhakti, and yoga, and jnana. Then he deals with the path of, of yoga briefly in verses 11, 12, 13, 14, and then summarizes it in 15. Again, he shows path of yoga by itself will lead only to manolaya. In order to achieve manonasa, the yogi must send the mind on the path of self-investigation. In other words, he must turn his mind back within to investigate who am I. Then only will the mind die. And for that great yogi whose mind is die, who has died, there's nothing further to do. So, though Bhagavan mentions the other parts, he's not recommending them, he's just showing their relative efficacy, and he's showing that they're beneficial only to the extent to which they lead to this ultimate path of Atma-Vichara. But if someone comes to Bhagavan, Bhagavan, this vichara is too difficult for me, can I do dhyana? Bhagavan says, yes, yes, you can do dhyana, very good, no, what's better than dhyana? And after some time, Bhagavan himself said this, if, if they come to me like, if they ask like this, the next time they'll come to me and say, oh, this dhyana is very difficult, can I do japa instead? And then I'll have to say, yes, japa is very good, what's better than japa? You do japa. And then after some time, they'll come to me, oh, this chapter is very difficult because my mind keeps on wandering. Can I do puja instead? And then I'd say, yes, do puja. And then after some time, they'll say, this puja is very difficult. Can I do prana? Because my mind's wandering even when I'm doing pran uh, puja. Can I do pranayama instead? Okay, yes, you do pranayama. But what can Bhagavan do? If, if they say that this is too difficult for them, he has to let them do whatever they want to do. That doesn't mean he's recommending it. He doesn't mean he's recommending uh, thank you, Michael. Um, so, Malcolm, do you want to answer, uh, ask your question? Um, the one I put on the chat? Right. Yes. Uh, I appreciated, Michael, I appreciated your distinguishing the difference and between Mano Leia and Mano Nasa. My question was, 
how how do we differentiate vichara uh, according to the goal of manoleya or manonasa or do we differentiate the use of vichara that is manoleya is the subsidence of mind brought about mm. by any means other than atma vichara Oh, okay. Because if so, the mind subsides by any means other than Atma Vichara, it will rise again because it's not okay. destroyed. Only Atma Vichara can destroy the mind. So, so if you're practicing Atma Vichara, you cannot subside in layer. Sometimes when practicing Atma Vichara, you may fall asleep. Sleep is layer, but John, it's not Atma Vichara that has caused you to fall into, into sleep. It's because you've lost a hold on your self-attentiveness that you fall asleep. So if we but, hold on to self-attentiveness, we cannot subside in mana layer. If we hold on to self-attentiveness firmly enough, the mind will subside. The, well, the mind, that is what happens when... To the extent to which we attend to ourselves, the mind thereby subsides. If yes. we attend to ourselves 100%, in other words, if we turn 180 degrees away from other things back towards ourselves, as soon as we turn 180 degrees, we become aware of ourselves alone. We cease to be aware of anything else whatsoever. As yes. soon as we're aware of ourselves alone, being aware of ourselves alone, is pure awareness, because pure awareness is awareness that is aware of nothing other than itself. So as soon as we are aware of ourselves alone, we are aware of ourselves as pure awareness. As soon as we're aware of ourselves as pure awareness, ego is thereby destroyed, because ego is the false awareness, I am this body. The impure awareness, the adjunct completed awareness, I am this body. That can be destroyed only by the correct awareness of ourselves. The correct awareness of ourself is pure awareness. So, okay, but, but Atma Vichara, if you follow Atma Vichara far enough, mm. you, you, you as ego experience yourself as pure awareness. But ego, as soon as ego experiences itself as pure awareness, it ceases to be ego and remains as pure awareness. But it doesn't always remain when we're meditating because it, we it, don't go deep enough we don't go deep enough right so but, it's not there's so, not a, so long there's as not we're a... holding on to self-attentiveness we are not subsiding in layer we can subside in layer only when we lose our hold on self-attentiveness when we are following this path of atma vichara hmm. there are two ways in which our attention can be diverted away from ourselves the, 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 the diversion of our attention away from ourselves is what is called pramada, that's inattentiveness or self-negligence. That can happen in one of two ways. Either we get distracted by thoughts, that's by things other than ourselves, or we subside in sleep. This is why this path of vichara is sometimes described as a razor's edge, because it's like walking a tightrope. We shouldn't fall this way, we shouldn't fall that way. But this tightrope is a razor-sharp tightrope. It's such a, a, a fine line to remain carefully balanced between thought and sleep. In other words, between mental activity and um, layer. We need to remain balanced in between. That is, the, that is a deeper meaning of the word samadhi. It's the state in which the di, the mind, is in the state of samatvam, of, 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 of 
of balance, equal equilibrium. So we are to remain balanced. We, we shouldn't get diverted by thoughts. We shouldn't succumb to sleep. We have to remain between the two. So it's not a differentiation. It's the same process just taken at a deeper level, continued. Yes, because, but in yoga, their aim is to go into layer. In, in oh, this, okay. our path, our aim is to avoid layer, to hold on to self-attentiveness. Okay. Uh, inevitably, we'll fall asleep sooner or later because, we, the, because the mind needs its rest. So, so, so long as the mind is active, it needs rest. So it's, it's, there's no wrong in sleeping. We shouldn't be trying to avoid sleep. But when we are practicing, we're trying to avoid falling asleep. If we, if we find sleep is overpowering, as Sadhuam said, okay, if you're feeling sleepy, sleep. When you wake up, continue. And avoiding thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Thanks. I mean, so long as we're practicing, we're trying to avoid both thought and sleep. Right. Okay. But when sleep overpowers us, then sleep and return to the practice when you wake up. Because then your mind will be fresh again and you'll be able to go deeper. Yes. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Um, so, Anu, Anu, you are still here. Yes, yes, I'm here. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You had a question. Actually, I should have asked you first because your question was last week. So go ahead and ask Michael about the I am I um, question that you had, and it also occurs in this verse. So it's a good time to ask. Yeah. So Namaskar, Michael. So the question I had last time was, is I am I like non non? Uh, you explained it as I am I. And, um, yes. I I understand that, but is non non really? Is it a good enough translation? Like, is I am I? Because Nan Nan in Tamar is, it's a hard one to translate. That's what I was trying to say. How would, you, tra how would you translate Nanidu? Nanidu. Yeah, like, I, I get what you're saying. I am I is, yeah. in English, that's what I would paraphrase it. But Yeah, you know. that is, Bhagavan often used to contrast Nanidu with Nan Nan. Nanidu means I am this. That is ego. Nan Nan is I am I. That is what we actually are. Okay. Yeah. I think I like what you explained, the way yes. you explained it today. So, yeah. Thanks. How would you translate Nana? A nana no. literally means I who. Do we put I right. hyphen who? No, we say, who? Who, we who say am I am yeah. who or who am I. Right. Yeah. The right. am is understood there. Just right. like am yeah. is understood in nana, am is understood in nan nan. Yes. Right. Yes, I agree. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Um, so, Satya Chilikuri, you there? Uh, yeah, I have a, a comment uh, from my own personal experience. I can say practicing pranayama has been extremely helpful in preconditioning for meditation or dhyana or atma vichara, either of them. It is my own practical experience 
and it is undeniable. Okay, but if you not... have a, a nylon rod, if you want to shape it to your desired shape, you have to heat it so that it becomes malleable. You have to make it red hot so that it becomes malleable. Similarly, in order to practice dhyana or atma vichara, preconditioning by practicing pranayama and developing the absorption of mind has been extremely useful. It is from my own practical experience and okay. there is a lot of objective evidence proven by multiple people and multiple experiments. So it is beyond doubt. Okay. The second but, question. Uh, the, can can uh, I just comment uh, on that? Can I just yeah, explain that? The, it's, a, it's a good point you. It's a good point you're making there. That is, this is why so many different paths are there, because for different people, different types of practices are appropriate. So why the path of yoga is there? We're not saying that yoga is is useless, but it is suitable for certain type of people. But however far you go in the path of yoga, in order to achieve the final goal, which is Manonasa, as Bhagavan says in verse 14 of Rupadeshundia, only when the mind is sent on that investigating path will its form die. So if our aim is the annihilation of mind, the, the Manonasa, Yoga is not sufficient. It, it it maybe for some people it prepares the mind for this path. Not for everyone. For many people, the path of bhakti is a more suitable preparation. But for certain type of minds, this path of yoga may be a more suitable preparation. But these are all only preparations. So you yourself say that this is very useful for coming to this path. So, but now you have come to this path. These, whatever we practice, we are all in the past, we must all have practiced some other practices, whether bhakti or yoga, we must have practiced these things. Um, not everyone will have practiced yoga, not everyone will have practiced uh, um, bhakti, but we must all have practiced one or other of these, but otherwise we wouldn't have been drawn to this path. Now we've been drawn to this path, that means those old practices have served their purpose. We can now leave them behind and take to this ultimate practice, which is the practice of self-investigation, because this is the only means to destroy the mind, as Bhagavan made very, very clear. Do you, uh, do you agree with that or, or not? Yeah, uh, there's a little follow-up uh, on that one, yes. because most of the confusion is related to how you define Manonasa because there's a has been a lot of misunderstanding behind the phrase manonasa because it is not a destruction of uh, mind as people presume that as if mind has a physical structure it is not mind is not a physical structure it is a group of thoughts is called mind and second uh, what are you achieving by practicing uh, self investigation What's the goal? What is it changing? Basically, if the goal is to change the concept of what is I, what is ego, then you get rid of the ignorance, thereby you are destroying the false assumption or false thought that I am this body or I am this Panchakosha 
or whatever false impression we may have. Uh, so that is what I assume is the right uh, understanding of manonasa. It is not a physical destruction of any part. And by manonasa, it does not divide us from having interaction with the external world or understanding others or communicating with others. Uh, okay, you're, you're touching on a big subject here. Firstly, manonasa means manonasa. But it's very, very clear what the term means. Nasa means annihilation, destruction. The root of the mind is ego. Only when ego is destroyed is the mind destroyed. Because without ego, there can be no mind. Because ego is the subject, but all the other thoughts of the mind are objects. Objects exist only in the view of the subject. Bhagavan is very, very clear in the, um, in the final verse of Uludunapadu. He concludes very, very clearly what is, what is liberation. Um, <clears throat> what he says is, um, in Tamil he says, Uruvum Aruvum Uruvaruvum Mundram Urum Mukti Enil Urepan Uruvum Aruvum Uruvaruvum Ayum Ahande Uru Aridal Mukti Una. What that means is, I'll read it a literal meaning and I'll explain it. If it is said that the liberation one will experience is three form, formless, form, formless, I will say, the ego form, which distinguishes form, formless, form, formless, being destroyed is liberation. What he means by that is, if it is said but liberate the mukti, but one will experience or one will attain, uh, is of three kinds, with form, without form, or either with form or without form. Uh, that is a state in which one can alternate back and forth between being a form and being formless, I will say only destruction of the ego form, in other words, the form-bound ego, which distinguishes these three kinds of liberation, with form, without form, with or without form, is liberation. So here Bhagavan states clearly that liberation is destruction of ego. And he begins actually that is, this is the end of Ulujanapadu. He begins Aksharamalai, the very first verse he says, Arunachala mena ahamein in a pava ahate verarupai arunachala. Arunachala, you, verarupai means you, you destroy the root. You destroy it, root, root and branch, as it were. In other words, you eradicate ego of those who meditate on you in the heart, those who meditate in the heart, but Arunachala is I. On or who meditate on the in the heart on Aranacha as I, you you destroy their ego. So destruction of ego is what Bhagavan's teachings are all about. Without ego, as he says in verse 26 of Uludanapdu, a handei undain anatum undahum, a handei indrail indru anatum. If ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ahande Yavamam, ego itself is everything. Adalal Therefore, know that investigating what this is is giving up everything. What this is means what this ego is. If we investigate ego, ego will cease to exist. 
when ego ceases to exist, everything else will cease to exist because everything else exists only in the view of ego. Then where is there any world to interact with? Who is there to interact with the world? It, as Bhagavan said, it's only in the view of the Agnani, but the Jnani seems to be a person and seems to interact with the world. But according to the experience of the Jnani, Bhagavan said, Jnana may Jnani, Jnana alone is the Jnani. <clears throat> Many classical Advaitins nowadays will tell you Manonasa doesn't really mean Manonasa. They give some diluted explanation. But from Bhagavan's teachings, it is clear that Manonasa means Manonasa. Annihilation. Manonasa means annihilation of the mind. Annihilation means complete and utter destruction of mind. And when mind is, even to say it's destruction of mind, Bhagavan goes even one step further than that. In verse 17 of Upadeshundiya, he says, Manatin Uruve, Maravadu Chava, Manamenum Undrile Undi Para, Markam Nerakumi Dundi Para. And in Sanskrit, he says, um, um, Manasam to Kim, Margane Krite, Neva Manasam, Margama Jabat. When one invest when investigation is done, what the mind actually is, there is no mind at all. So what is called Manonasa is just the recognition that mind has never existed at all. If mind had existed at one time, then if it, then it can come back again. But the truth is mind never existed. So destruction of the mind is like if you see a, a, a rope and mistake it to be a snake, if you look carefully at the snake, you can say, and if you look carefully enough at the snake, you'll see it's just a rope. Metaphorically, you can say that is destruction of the snake. The snake has been killed. Likewise, with the mind. If we look at the mind carefully enough, we'll see what actually, what seems to be the mind, what the mind actually is, is only uh, pure awareness. So there's no such thing as mind other than pure awareness. And pure, in the view of pure awareness, there's nothing other than pure awareness. So, Bhagavan I is very, very clear. I understand but... what you said is right, but uh, uh, there is a one uh, aspect of uh, this discussion that has been uh, confusing for a long time for me, um, but finally I got uh, the real answer. Uh, I think uh, when I say, or someone says that uh, Ramana Maharshi was teaching physically or interacting with the public, it is the transactional reality. It is a relative reality. Exactly. It is not absolute reality. When you say if it is absolute reality, there is no mind. But we are saying that we are controlling the mind. So we are confusing or navigating between absolute reality and relative reality and uh, giving different versions of the same uh, Yes, we, uh, need to, so, we need to clearly distinguish the two. Then we can talk, but often when we talk about Bhagavan, we're talking about the person who lived for 54 years in Tiruvannamala, he gave us these teachings. But that person exists only in our view. What was shining through that person, what the, the source from which Uludunapada and all these works came, is, is, not, is, is what was shining through that person. That is Brahman, that is Jnana itself. So Bhagavan is nothing but Jnana. Bhagavan is Jnana Surupa.
He's pure awareness, nothing other than awareness. Bhagavan himself often used to say, jnana me jnani. That means jnana alone is the jnani. Jnana means pure awareness. So what can know pure awareness? Only pure awareness can know pure awareness. So the jnani cannot be anything other than pure awareness. That is why it said in the Upanishad, the knower of Brahman becomes Brahman. It's not actually a matter of becoming. When we know Brahman, we'll know, we know that we ourselves are Brahman, but we were never anything other than Brahman. So we, there never was any such thing as mind or ego. What exists is ekam eva advaitiam, one only without a second. Agree, it is simple revelation. Mm, sorry? It is simple revelation of the fact. It is very simple. The problem is, for most of us, it's too simple. Because our minds are too complicated, so we're not ready to accept the simplicity. If we accept the simplicity, the simple teaching of Advaita is so, so simple, no commentaries are necessary. Tattvamasi, know yourself, that's all there is to it. It's so, so simple. Why all these commentaries are necessary? To slowly, slowly, slowly bring people around to understanding this, to jettisoning the old ideas and come to the simple understanding But what actually exists. Yatatamai ulladu apmasarupam andre, as Bhagavan says in the seventh paragraph of Nana, what actually exists is only apmasarupa. Apmasarupa means the real nature of ourself, ourself as we actually are. So we alone are what actually exists. Thank you very much. So there never that. was any ego, never was any mind, never was any body, never was any world. So the ultimate truth, the Paramatika Satya, is Ajata. No creation. Yep. Thank you, Michael. Okay. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arunachala Ramanaya.